John chapter 13, verse 36 to 38. This is God's word. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. This is God's word. There are a few Bible passages that even um, plenty of people in the world who would never read their Bible are aware of. I think one of which is the famous passage in Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before the fall. Uh, We know that because um, experientially, there's uh, certainly myself um, in my sinful nature would have loved seeing someone who was so arrogant and so prideful having a colossal fall, particularly Australians who have tall poppy syndrome, like cutting down people. And so we love it when we see someone who is very prideful, finally having a fall from grace and being humiliated because it brings them down uh, to the rest of us. But as we think about it, we ourselves would hate to be in that position of saying something where we are so sure of ourselves and then we fall in utter humility after a prideful moment. Now, we see this so clearly in the life of Peter, probably the most well-known example of pride coming before the fall. For a bit of context, Jesus has just given uh, this astounding and beautiful commandment we went over last week, verses 34 and 35, where he says uh, that we, namely his disciples, we are to love one another just as he has loved us. The love that we have seen in Christ laying down his life for us, as well as washing his disciples' feet, that love is to be present amongst ourselves. Now, this is what Jesus has just said, but Peter can't ignore what Jesus said just a moment before that in verse 33, when Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot come. Peter simply can't let this go. He's caught up on this. And so in verse 36, he says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus responds by saying, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. That is to say, Peter, eventually he will suffer death and eventually come to that place of that shared glory that we looked at last week. He will enter into the joy of his master, but Peter cannot take that path to glory right now because that path is one that Christ alone must walk in order to open it up for all those who would trust in him. And now here, after this brief exchange, we come to one of the clearest moments of spiritual pride before destruction that we see in scripture. And this is what we're going to dwell on today, spiritual pride. So Peter says here, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. He's so sure of himself. It's such a confident statement. And we know it will soon be met by a colossal fall on this very night. He will deny Jesus. Now, we should not think of these words that Peter says here, where he says, 
Lord, I would lay down my life for you as though he is uh, trying to appear tough and appear loyal. Kind of like if, if someone uh, back at school on the playground, you hear of like the biggest kid on the playground saying they want to fight you. And amongst your friends, you say, oh, well, I'll take him. But really, you know, you're doomed and you would never try and fight him. But you're just trying to appear as though you have a sense of toughness. I don't think that's what's happening here for Peter. I think he is genuinely convinced at that point in time that he would die for Jesus. He is genuinely convinced that he would sooner die then deny Jesus Christ. The problem is it is a conviction that is not grounded in a sober assessment of himself. It is a conviction that is a true conviction, but it is grounded in a prideful assessment of his own self. It's not grounded in reality. And this is often the issue with spiritual pride. Spiritual pride survives where humble self-discernment is lacking. That's how spiritual pride survives and thrives. Now, Jesus knows that Peter's words are empty. So he goes on to say, Peter, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now, we don't hear anything else from Peter for the next few chapters as Jesus gives this farewell discourse from chapters 14 to 16. Peter appears very quiet. He's usually someone who is the first to speak. We don't hear much from him for the rest of this farewell discourse. And you can imagine how you might feel. I mean, Peter had such assurance that he would lay down his life for his Lord. And then that very Lord says back to him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter is probably now in this place of shock, assessing whether that is true. Now, if we fast forward to chapter 18, where Jesus is betrayed and handed over, we'll just look briefly at Peter's fall here in chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. Uh, We come after the betrayal to verse 15. And in chapter 18, verse 15, we read that Peter uh, follows Jesus. He is taken away. So Peter and John at the same time are following uh, nearby. And Peter meets this servant girl. And the servant girl says to Peter, hey, are you not one of his disciples? And Peter denies that he knows Jesus. He says, no, I'm not. Then we come to verse 25 and 27, and Peter is now warming himself. Jesus is inside being probably uh, beaten and accused and mocked. And Peter is warming himself with uh, people around a fire. And two other people at that moment ask him if he is a follower of Jesus. And Peter denies them both, thus fulfilling the three times that he denies Jesus. Now, John's gospel seems to be what I would say the most sympathetic to Peter's denial, for it kind of gives Peter's denial and then immediately just moves on without saying much and moves on to Jesus being handed over uh, to his trial. But in the other gospels, we have more details that show really what a catastrophic fall this was. In Mark's account, He uh, details how Peter began invoking a curse upon uh, people and swearing that he does not know Jesus. And then in Luke's account, 
Uh, It tells us that Peter, as he denied Jesus the third time, Jesus is there and he actually looks at Peter in the eye as the rooster crows. And you can imagine, imagine that moment of denying Jesus and then having the eyes of your Lord fix upon you and everything then hits you at that moment that you have had a colossal fall. And Luke tells us that Peter wept bitterly. Those tears would have been the greatest tears he had ever had. The most painful tears of his life. I mean, three years of intimate, constant fellowship with Jesus. Peter had confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He had had wonderful moments of of victory. He was so sure of himself that he was ready to die for his Lord. And then that very night, he denies Jesus three times. He cannot even confess his Lord before a servant girl. It is quite a fall. It is quite a catastrophic fall. Such a bold and overly confident statement of allegiance and then such a cowardly fall. Now, it's very easy for Christians to make Peter out to be a bit of a whipping boy that we make fun of without then assessing ourselves and recognizing whether we would have done anything any differently. And so that we do not have the same spiritual pride that we see in Peter, where he has a a false assessment of himself, we're now going to assess our own state in terms of whether there is spiritual pride in our own lives and where this might be present. And then we're going to finish by looking at the comfort of how God used uh, the fall of Peter and how God uses our own failures in order to fulfill his purposes. But firstly, let's examine what spiritual pride is and where it may be present in our own lives. Spiritual pride is simply where we have overestimated ourselves, where we have an overestimated opinion of ourselves, too high of an opinion. It's a false sense of assurance that comes from within ourselves rather than from God, or it is a confidence in how we perceive our abilities rather than God's promises or rather than reality. Now, because spiritual pride is based upon an overestimate of ourselves, it's very difficult to detect because naturally we think, surely not me. No, that guy, I've seen how he acts, but not me. And this is the reality of spiritual pride. It's quite ironic. It's because we have such a, a high view of ourselves that we think, surely not me. Someone once explained spiritual pride like body odor. You know, with body odor, you're usually the last one to work out that you stink. Everyone else has recognized that you smell really, really bad. But because you're around yourself so much, you don't even notice that you have horrible body odor. Now, spiritual pride in a similar way is something that usually other people can identify before you do because you're so accustomed to yourself. Now, we want to, just as with body odor, we want to make sure we have safeguards in place so that we don't smell. Likewise, with spiritual pride, we want to have safeguards so that we would not succumb to this form of spiritual pride. So what are the signs of spiritual pride in our lives? I'm going to look at five brief signs of spiritual pride in our lives. Firstly, 
the first sign of spiritual pride is that you exaggerate other people's sins and minimize your own. Or you exaggerate other people's failures and you minimize your own. A prideful person often finds it very easy to identify sins and failures in other people and finds it much harder to identify and admit sin in their own lives. And when they identify sin in other people's lives, there is no desire to protect that person's reputation at all. In fact, if anything, uh, they might embellish it to make it seem a really gross sin. On the other hand, when they identify sin in themselves, there is the utmost care to make sure it's not seen as a gross sin, or even that we would uh, try and confess sins that are more spiritually acceptable. You know, it's very easy to confess a sin of pride amongst people. In fact, it might even make you look like a really mature Christian. Much harder to confess uh, some sort of sin that you've been living in a pornographic world of lust and, and masturbation and all sorts of things. That's something that really cuts the room. It's easy to confess certain sins, much harder to confess others. A, a spiritually prideful person recognizes this and chooses to confess only that which is acceptable and that which is going to protect their reputation. Meanwhile, for other people, there is no care for their reputation. Now, if we are to truly follow the pattern Jesus gives that he identifies in Matthew 7, where he talks about if you see uh, a speck in your brother's eye and yet you have a log in your own. If we are to follow that pattern, then obviously our sins ought to look like logs while other people's ought to look like specks in the sense of if you're always looking at other people's sins as logs and your own as specks, then you have succumbed to spiritual pride. Now, Jonathan Edwards gives this example of a prideful person in comparison to a humble person. And he says, the spiritually proud person often finds fault with other saints. They show that they are low in grace, cold and dead in heart, and quick to discern and take notice of deficiencies in others. What we've said, they recognize sins in other people's. He goes on to say, the humble Christian, on the other hand, has so much to do at home and sees so much evil in his own heart that he is not apt to be very busy with other hearts. What he's saying is that the, the humble Christian, in contrast to the prideful person, is kept very busy recognizing the sin that constantly crouches at their door rather than constantly looking out for the sin that's crouching at someone else's door. They recognize their sin. As David said, my sin is always before the Lord and before me. I recognize it. And so the, the humble Christian is far more aware and kept far more busy recognizing their sin rather than others. So that's the first characteristic. You exaggerate other people's sins and minimize your own. Secondly, your life is characterized by presumption. In James chapter four, James speaks of people who boast about tomorrow. And so he says, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and profit. 
That is those who presume upon the Lord. You presume that you will have your life all sorted. You presume that you're in control of it. And so we're going to go into this town. We're going to take this business venture. We're going to plan our family this way. We're going to do whatever it is because we're in control of our lives. James goes on to say in verse 14 of chapter four, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Much less a year into the future. He He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, James is not against making plans, but he is against a form of presumption that is characterized by self-sufficiency and entitlement, which our society breeds within us. And it is a life that presumes that we have control over our life. And James says, your life is a mist. You can't even grab mist. And as soon as the sun rises, it's gone. That's your life. It it just slips through your fingertips. We're, We're here one moment and the next we're gone. It is presumptuous to assume that you have control over your life. You have no control over your life. Yes, you have responsibility to steward your life well, But ultimately, it is the Lord who is in control. Your days have been numbered. Now, that's wonderfully comforting for us who are in Christ. But it is also a reminder not to be presumptuous, not to have a prideful arrogance that assumes everything will go the way we have planned. So we must not presume to make major life decisions without seeking the Lord in prayer. We must not presume our idea of the future will go exactly how we plan. Churches, though there's a fascination with this, must not or ought not to presume to to plant 20 churches in the next 20 years with these huge visions that we have. We don't know if we will even be here in a year's time. Our task is just to faithfully serve the Lord while it is called today. So rather than presumption, We ought to have a reverence that recognizes God's complete control over things and our need to submit to his good and glorious will in every aspect of our lives. Thirdly, the third sign of spiritual pride is that you often fail to keep your word. This is not to say that everyone who fails to keep their word has succumbed to spiritual pride, but I believe that spiritually prideful people often fail to keep their word. Reason being because spiritual pride is an overestimation of your abilities. So you will commit to things that you simply can't commit to. Often prideful people say they're going to do things and then they don't do them. They don't show up. They don't fulfill their word. Their words are cheap because they do not have a humility that fears committing to something that they may not be able to keep. And when this is the case, we fail to live with the integrity that is essential to a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the solution is not to go the total opposite end and never commit to anything. The solution, of course, is to live with such humility and such a sober assessment of your own abilities that as we offer our word, we are offering our word with wisdom, but we are also recognizing that we're going to do all that we can to keep that word. It's it's in a contrast to a prideful person who offers their word in a careless way. Oh, you need help with that? Sure, I'll do that. 
And then when the day comes, oh, sorry, something's come up. I'm unable to do that. Even committing to a church. Yes, I'll commit to a church. Oh, but I won't be able to be here for the next several months. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a careless way of offering your word. Whereas a humble person offers their word with great care, with great uh, humility. You let your yes be a yes and your no be a no. So that's our first three. The fourth aspect or identifier of spiritual pride is that your instinct is to defend yourself. Your instinct is to defend yourself. So when someone corrects you or offers a differing view on something, when they identify something that you may not like in your own life, is your desire, now this was con very convicting for me, if I can confess, this was very convicting because I know I have succumbed to this before. <clears throat> is your desire to immediately think of why that person is wrong? To immediately think, hang on, how am I going to refute whatever they're bringing at me? Before they've even brought it to you, just to immediately become defensive and think, how am I going to refute whatever it is they're bringing against me? Is your posture defensive and inflexible? If our instinct is to preserve ourselves with hasty rebuttals and an unwillingness to be corrected, then I would say we are being influenced by pride rather than humility. A, a preacher once spoke on this and spoke of how to combat this form of pride. And he, he spoke about the need to make sure we own every fault of ours, regardless of how little. We own every fault. So he says, if you have ever at any time thought, spoken or acted wrong, do not refrain from acknowledging it. Never dream that it will hurt the cause of God. See, sometimes we think, <clears throat> if I confess this, it'll ruin my reputation. Or we might even think it'll ruin God's reputation. He goes on to say, never dream that this will hurt the cause of God. In fact, it will further it. Be open and honest when you are rebuked and do not seek to evade it or disguise it. Rather, let it appear just as it is and you will thereby not hinder, but adorn the gospel. He says, own any fault that you have. You won't hinder the gospel, rather you will adorn it. And what he is saying is, remember the gospel. A part of the gospel is that we remember we were in the wrong. We were grossly in the wrong. And the only way to resolution and restoration <coughs> excuse me, was us owning that wrong, was us recognizing our sin before a holy God. That was the only pathway to freedom. That was the only way to forgiveness. So if we are to follow that same pattern, then we must not keep a defensive posture. A defensive posture is actually against the gospel because the gospel reminds us that the only way to freedom was for us to lay all of our sins and all of our faults and all of our wrongs before the throne of grace and recognize how God is totally able to cleanse us from those. This is the heart of a repentant posture. See, we don't simply repent once. We live a repentant life. Repentance is to change. And so we are always open to change. That is the humble heart in contrast to a prideful heart. Lastly, <clears throat> and finally, 
of these aspects of spiritual pride. An indicator of spiritual pride is where prayer is not a priority in your life. Prayerlessness is one of the strongest indicators of spiritual pride, because what is prayer? A part of what prayer is, is where we are asking the Lord to do what only he can. We are recognizing our utter dependence upon the Lord. It is one of the most tangible ways that we experience our utter dependence upon the Lord in a life of prayer. It is where we rid ourselves of a false reality <clears throat> of self-sufficiency and we align ourselves with the true reality, which is that we are utterly dependent upon the Lord for everything. As Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you have not received from the Lord? Everything is a gracious gift from the Lord. And so a lack of prayer is a deadly sign that you are not living in dependence upon the Lord. It's a deadly sign of self-sufficiency. I mean, we are told to pray for our daily bread. Now, even in an environment, as I've said before, like ours, well, it's very easy for us uh, to forget about praying for our daily bread because we have about six supermarkets within walking distance of us. It's very easy to access bread. And yet we're told to pray for our daily bread, that is to pray for our daily nourishment because it's a reminder, it's a tangible reminder of us to remember that we are dependent upon the Lord for everything. We are dependent upon him to stock those supermarkets so that we may access bread. We're dependent upon him to give us the resources to purchase that bread. We are totally dependent upon him. And so we seek him in prayer. This is one of the reasons why it's so important for us as a church to gather every week for a prayer. It's not an optional extra. I think it's essential to the life of our church to weekly gather for prayer because it is how we so clearly recognize together and collectively our deep need for Christ. How glorious it is as we lay everything before the Lord and we are reminded that everything is in his hands. <clears throat> Prayer like this weans us from a prideful posture that simply offers God lip service, that simply attends a place. A life of prayer weans us from that and brings us to a place of genuine dependence upon God. Now, these are just a few of the ways in which pride manifests in us. We could go on for hours with other ways. But one thing about pride is that it shows no partiality. Pride is not selective as to the people it engulfs. We will all succumb to pride in some way. <clears throat> now, let me therefore give two warnings against pride. The first warning is really for those who deny Christ. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 verses 11 to 12, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Now that's a, a, a warning uh, rather than a comfort. It is a strong warning. Now we look at the life of Peter. Peter denied Christ, but by the grace of God, he was brought to repentance and restoration. And that's a wonderful comfort that we can take. But think just a few moments before Peter, someone else denied Jesus. Judas denied Jesus as he walked out to betray him. 
Now, the warning that we all must hear is that we must not have an overconfidence if there is any heart of denial within us that we would be a Peter rather than a Judas. We should heed the warning that perhaps a denial, if you are living in utter denial of Christ, is leading you down the same path of Judas, which is one of utter destruction. And the call is always to turn away from that life and to trust in Jesus Christ. We must not have presumption that assumes at some day I'll profess my allegiance to Christ. No, today is the day of salvation. Second warning to those with lingering pride, a warning for all of us. Paul gives this warning to the Corinthians when he he says to them, if anyone thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Or he literally says, if anyone thinks he stands or if anyone thinks he is something, watch out. That's what he's saying. Be very, very careful if you think, if you have an overconfidence in your abilities. James warns us in a similar way, saying God resists the proud and then commands us to humble ourselves before the Lord so that he may exalt you. To hold on to pride is ultimately to reject the gospel and deny reality. To hold on to pride is actually to reject the gospel because the gospel leaves no room for pride since the gospel reminds us that we are all condemned before a holy God and completely unable to do anything to get ourselves out of that. That's the reminder of the gospel. So there is no claim of pride that anyone can have when they come to a true understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pride is that which attributes more worth to ourselves than we have and it is simply living a lie this is the sad reality of all of those who we were as who reject jesus christ it is to live in a false reality is to live with a prideful and wrong assessment of oneself which assumes i will be perfectly fine in this life without christ the amount of times we hand out tracks every second saturday and we're handing out the message of the gospel and people say, oh, I'm, I'm okay, I'm fine. Well, no, you're not. You're, you're destined for hell. You need Jesus Christ. It's pride that succumbs people. It's pride that lingers at our door as well. And so we must flee from pride. We must recognize our unworthiness before a holy God. And for those who then have their pride crushed, by a merciful God. For those of us who even have our pride crushed as we are examining our lives against these indicators of pride and we're beginning to feel a sense of shame over them, there is wonderful comfort to be had because God's word tells us that he resists the proud, but he draws near to the brokenhearted. God will never despise a broken and contrite spirit. It was Charles Simeon who said, Uh, One of the two most important things that I must remember all the time is that I am a dirty, wretched sinner before a holy God because that knowledge leads me to a place of humility and brokenness, brokenness. And I know that God will never despise a broken heart. That's my safe place because in that place of humility, that is where Christ comes and swoops me up and intercedes and lifts me up. How glorious it is to be in that place of genuine contrition over our sin, to then receive the comfort from the Lord in that place. Now, what can we learn from Peter's pride and fall as we finish? 
Three lessons here. Number one, the first lesson we can learn is that God is never surprised by our failures. God is never surprised by our failures. In Luke's account of Peter's um, bold statement that he will lay down his life for Jesus in Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus doesn't say that Satan came and demanded to sift you like wheat. And I told him, hands off. No, he says to Peter, it's going to happen. You're going to be crushed. You're going to go through this sifting and it's going to be painful. But it is no surprise to Jesus. It is no surprise to our God because he knows how weak we are. This is why Jesus foretold Peter's denial. He knew it was going to be a crushing time for him. But Jesus says, but I have prayed for you. So in the midst of that crushing failure that you will experience, I'm upholding you. I know you're going to fall. I know it will be crushing, but you will stand again because I'm going to pick you up. It's no surprise that you'll be in this circumstance. It is tempting to look at our own failures. That is for those who have enough humility to recognize their own failures. And often it is tempting uh, to be in that place if you have succumbed to a particular sin, if you succumb to some sort of failure and think, what must the Lord think of me? What must my brothers and sisters think of me? I've so dishonored my Lord. But as Corrie ten Boom famously said, there is no pit so great that Christ is not deeper still. Christ is deeper than all of our failures. So God is never surprised by our failures. And then more than that, secondly, God uses the crushing nature of a prideful fall to strengthen us, to strengthen believers. We saw how Peter's fall was foreordained by the Lord. He was sifted like wheat. And God used that to refine Peter into a man of God. Peter's pride had to be brought to the surface, just as it is with us. Pride, since it is so in opposition to the way of God, since it is so in opposition to the gospel, must be brought to the surface in some way. Peter's pride had to be brought to the surface and sunk deep into that pit of despair for him to then be restored to the man who would become a pillar of the early church. So in Acts 2, we, we see Peter boldly proclaiming the word of God at Pentecost. A few chapters later in Acts 4, we see Peter before the council. Uh, and while he denied Christ before a servant girl, all of a sudden he is before the religious leaders who had the same power and authority to hand the, his master over to the Romans to be crucified. And he is before them as they're saying, you better stop talking about Jesus or there's going to be trouble. And he says, well, as for you, you do whatever you need to do. But as for us, we cannot help but speak of all the things we have heard. He would not deny Christ at all at that point. Now, how does this man have such a transformation? Well, it is surely not least of all because of the indwelling Holy Spirit empowering him, but because his pride was crushed. He was sifted like wheat. He was brought to a place of utter brokenness. And then the spirit of God, who would otherwise resist the proud, was then able to give grace to Peter in his place of humility. 
That pride had to be destroyed and Peter had to be brought to a place of utter weakness so that the grace of God would be seen to be utterly powerful. Just as Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 4, that the apostles, they hold the treasure and we likewise hold this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing greatness of the glory belongs to God and not to us. God has ordained that our lives would be more representative of broken, weak, frail jars of clay. And yet it is to show the glory of God all the more so that as we are weak jars of clay, as we are hard pressed, we are not broken. We are not driven to despair. Rather, the glory of God shows itself through our weakness. This is why we do not despise the discipline of the Lord. Whether that discipline comes as a direct result of sin in your life that you can so easily identify, or whether it is discipline that comes in some other way, a a cancer diagnosis, a, a broken relationship, some other thing that God is totally sovereign over and is using in order to sanctify and discipline us. That fatherly discipline comes in order to rid us of the pride that so often manifests itself in us. And this knowledge, just knowing that God is using this to refine us, just as he was for Peter, as he was being sifted like wheat, Jesus is saying, but I'm praying for you. So when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. Likewise for us, as we are in that moment of discipline where our life appears to be falling apart, where whether we have had a prideful fall or some other fall, God is using that in some glorious way to refine us and form us into the servant of Christ that is more representative of Christ, who was the humble servant. And thirdly and finally, our last comfort to remember, Christ's victory is greater than our failures. Christ's victory is greater than our failure. Whether it be a moment of shame Like Peter, when you fail to boldly speak of Christ, perhaps you've failed speaking to a work colleague or a neighbor or a family member about Jesus. Perhaps you have lapsed into a particular sin. You have not lived according to the new life that you have in Christ. Christ's victory is always greater than our failures. So Peter in 1 Peter chapter 1 begins his letter in verse 3 by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is saying, praise God that he has rebirthed us to a living hope. Now think for a moment as we finish how Peter would have felt on that Saturday after the crucifixion. His last moments with his Savior was where his Savior looked him in the eyes after Peter had just denied him three times. And Peter wept bitterly. Next thing, Christ is crucified. The Saturday, he's still in the tomb. Nothing's happened. Think about the hopelessness that would have succumbed Peter. But then... Christ rose from the dead and all of a sudden everything changes for Peter. So in light of the resurrection, Peter is writing this and he's saying, praise the Lord. He has birthed us into a living hope. 
Peter, of all people, who was in a pit of hopelessness, would be able to testify to this. Praise the Lord. The resurrection changes everything. That victory is greater than my failure. It is a living hope. And see, to live in a place of despair and despondency over our sin, not merely to feel shame over it, but I mean to live in that place of despair and despondency over a particular failure is actually to deny the fullness of the redemption that Christ accomplished. To stay in that place is actually to deny the fullness of redemption. It's actually to say, no, 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 Christ's blood is powerful, but it's not enough to bring me out of this pit of despair. The work on the cross was pretty powerful, but it's not enough to cover the shame that I have. And it's to spit in the face of Christ to say it wasn't enough. But we know that the cross is enough. We know that that redemption that was accomplished on the cross is enough to cover a multitude of sins. So yes, we have shame over our sin, we do not live in that place of shame. Our trajectory has been radically changed by the resurrection. So every stumble and fall that we might have, we do so as those who are on an upward trajectory. That is a living hope. We do so as those who are on this trajectory that Peter spoke of in 1 Peter 1. We have been born again to a living hope, a hope that does not put us to shame. The ultimate trajectory for those who are in Christ, the glory of God, as we briefly come back to finish it. Um, Verse 36 here, where Peter, uh, Jesus says, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. That is to say, Jesus is saying, your trajectory is secure. You can't come to me now, but as we'll see in the very next chapter, I'm preparing a place for you. Our trajectory is secure by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is to complete glory. That is into our full inheritance. That is into the joy of our master. That is our trajectory. Samuel Rutherford, uh, who was in the 17th century, he uh, wrote of this hope and he wrote a famous work of the supremacy of Christ, who was called Lex Rex, of basically telling all of the kings, King Charles and all of the kings of the uh, British and European empire, that they have no authority other than that which is given to Christ. And he has authority over each and every one of them. And so they basically said, well, come before us because we're going to kill you now. That's treason. And by the grace of God, he was already on his deathbed. So as he received the summons from King Charles to come before the court so they could try him for treason and kill him, Samuel Rutherford said to them, tell them that I have a summons already from a superior judge and indicator, and I must answer my first summons. And as your day arrives, I shall be where few kings and great folk come. What a glorious hope as he is facing the threats of death, he merely says, I have a greater summons. My Lord is calling me home. He has promised me that I'll be with him and I am going to answer his summons rather than yours. And that's the hope that we have through all of our failures, through all of our sin and shame. The blood of Christ so purifies us, so renews us, so restores us that that trajectory is unstoppable. 
that we will enter into the joy of our master. That's what we're going to witness as Reese, our new brother, is baptized today. That we see the assurance of that. We look at baptism and we see the death and resurrection of Christ so clearly. We see the cleansing work of the gospel so clearly. We see that which assures us of our inheritance. That is what keeps us on the path of faithfulness now. So let me pray and then we're going to sing one more song and then we'll get ready to head down uh, to Point Hut Crossing. Father, we thank you uh, that there is great comfort to be had in looking at Peter's denial and his fall and yet the restoration that he has by your work of redemption. Please help us to rejoice in that. Help us, Lord, to recognize our sin, for our sin is great, and to recognize that we are indeed wretched sinners. But in that place of shame over our sin, we are brought to a place of brokenness, and we remember that you will never despise a broken and contrite heart. Rather, you will lift them up. And we are lifted up as we look to the cross of Christ, as we see on one hand our sin and then we look to the cross of Christ on the other hand and we see how clearly that work of our Saviour is so able to cleanse us from every bit of unrighteousness. And we glory in that. We make our boast in that for it is the entire work of Jesus Christ. So help us now to sing to that end. Help us to have great joy. Wet our appetites uh, for that day of redemption, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.